Hello everyone and welcome back to the AirPod, a Black Friday special packed with the latest royal news and goings on. I'm of course your host, Omid Scobie, joined by the lovely ABC News foreign correspondent Maggie Rooley. Very full one. I, <laughs> I know, but I was trying to explain to all my British colleagues about like what Thanksgiving means for Americans. And I was like, well, it's like it's like the best of all the holidays, because all you do, you just you just eat, you pretty much. <laughs> so you just eat a lot of food and you're with friends and family and everyone tells each other how grateful they are and how much they love each other, you know? It's kind of like the best holiday around. Although you say, you say, you talk about eating, but I saw some pictures of your Thanksgiving spread and it looked very healthy. Okay, that is fair. I kind of, I, I, I'm the person that's always in charge of bringing the vegetables to the Thanksgiving table, so I take my role quite seriously. But for Thanksgiving, even vegetables kind of have like a fun kick. I made this like massive kale squash salad, but also threw in these like huge hunks of homemade croutons. So, you know, it was like, it was moderation, right? A little bit of treat with a little bit of kale. And then, of course, exactly. oh, I forced everyone to go on a turkey trot with me that morning. Go for a little run, you know, before <laughs> the turkey, uh, which is fun. And anyway, I think everyone obviously knows this year, Thanksgiving and everyone's holiday season looks so different than it has in years past. But in a weird way, I think it also made it special because, you know, everyone is trying to just find what they're grateful for, even though, you know, there is a lot of uh, loss and sadness right now. But it does make you focus on, you know, the things that you've been blessed with. And so um, taking a moment uh, to not only, well, eat a ton, but also, you know, really think about what you're grateful for. Uh, it is one of my favorite holidays. And again, did I mention the eating? That's the other part that's really important. Um, so all of those things. <laughs> Hopefully not a candy man in sight. You know how I feel yeah, about that. This was like them. the first thing Omid texted me when we were talking this morning. He was like, did you have any of those ghastly candied lambs? Because like, what is with them? They are disgusting. <laughs> I said harsh, but I well, also said Well, your no. <laughs> Thanksgiving spread, your Thanksgiving spread sounded somewhat similar to the Sussexes. Of course, we now have members of the royal family joining in the Thanksgiving celebrations. And I checked in with the source close to the couple uh, to find out how they'd be celebrating this year. Of course, uh, due to social distancing and restrictions, they are at their home in Montecito. But I was told by a source that they were looking forward to celebrating their first American Thanksgiving in the States as a family and that they had in, enjoyed home-cooked meals, uh, traditional Thanksgiving dishes, including recipes made with fresh vegetables from oh, their garden. I would love to see their Thanksgiving table. I feel just like they would really do it well. <laughs> uh, also, those veggies have grown quickly because they only moved in yeah, that's a good not point. that long ago. <laughs> like, oh my, get into the heart of this article. We need proof of these veggies. <laughs> A demand and investigation. That is really exciting, though. Their first Thanksgiving together, stateside, as a family. I mean, I think that must be really cool for Megan to be able to share it with Harry. I think, you know, I have other friends that are in sort of a cross-the-pond relationships. And being able to share a holiday that really is special for Americans with their other half that's British, uh, it's a really cool and special moment. And when, you know, to actually be able to experience it in America as well, I'm sure it was really fun for Harry and really fun for the three of them. Absolutely. And especially for a couple that have a child of dual citizenship. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the, the British holidays and the American holidays are just as important as each other for little Archie. So it's great. And especially, you know, we'll talk about this a bit later in the show, but after the year um, that we have discovered that the couple had, mm -hmm. I think it's great to be able to have those moments just together as a family. It, you know, nothing is more important. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think for everyone, too, again, going back to finding those moments to be grateful this year, you know, of course, so much has 
you know, quite the understatement, but not gone the way a lot of people planned um, and a lot of heartbreak for others as well. Uh, I, you know, it, it's important to come together too and recognize things that you can still be grateful for in this time. Mm. Well, as we come out of lockdown in the UK and other countries, including parts of Canada, are going into lockdown, we'll be talking a little bit about uh, some of the latest findings with the vaccine for COVID-19, uh, particularly from the Oxford University group working on the vaccine over here. Prince William had a conversation with researchers at the labs here in Oxford, which is actually where I currently am at the moment. Oh. Um, so we'll be talking a little bit about that. We'll also be finding more about Kate's five big questions. You'll remember at the start of the year, she had five of them and we now have answers. But more importantly, we also have insight into what Kate's focus mm. will be moving forward. The palace say there, there is milestone and landmark work up ahead for the Duchess of Cambridge and she spoke about it at an online forum earlier today. We'll be sharing some details from that. We'll also be checking in with Prince Charles who has adopted. Um, I will save the details. I know that. this is the good tease. You're guys, <laughs> you're going to want to find out what he's adopted. <laughs> Um, but we, of course, started the week this week with the Duchess of Sussex's mm. New York Times essay, where she revealed that both her and Harry suffered the tragic loss of their second child. Uh, in a poignant essay written for the paper, Meghan spoke about dealing with grief after miscarriage. Of course, started a conversation about the importance of checking in on others and those around us after what has been a really difficult year. Now, I don't think anyone was expecting to really hear anything of this kind from the couple. Um, you know, from from the outset, they look like they have really settled into what it looks like a beautiful life in California. But of course, behind the scenes, they have privately struggled with the grief behind this. And at this point, Megan felt it was the right time to come out and talk about it. And, you know, I think I remember getting the message that this article was coming out on Wednesday morning. Um, and I think, you know, you think you know a, a subject or a person that you write about. And I think reading Megan's words on this that were so personal, so candid, uh, the impact from that, I, and I could immediately see from the comments online, um, just carried so much weight. I think a lot of people um, found it really refreshing to hear the Duchess to speak about something that so many people choose to not talk about for fear of discrimination, for judgment, and of course, the heavy taboo, taboo that still uh, weighs over this conversation around baby loss. And I think you made such a good point, Ome, just you know, from the outside looking in and what you see on social media and what people often share, you wouldn't know that they had gone through such a tragedy together. And I think that's not just this couple, that's, you know, most people out there. Most people are posting sort of their most exciting things that happened to them in life, the happy things that happened to them on social media. And so that's kind of what you start to believe Everyone is living, and if you're going through a tragedy, it can be very isolating, and you feel like you're very alone. And as you pointed out, I think that's why this article resonated with so many families, so many people in general, because you know, here you have someone saying, yes, you know, the photos we put out 
are sometimes of our most exciting lives, but we too went through this very tragic time together as a couple, suffered a great loss. We are and were grieving. And I think a lot of people have also gone through that same thing. How do you sort of keep going forward every day, putting on this brave face for the world when you know your family is grieving the loss of a child? And to, to be so public about that as a, as a public figure who is you know looked up to and uh, by many uh, women and men, it, it's so important to be the face, uh, but it takes a lot of courage as well to be someone to put yourself out there, to make yourself vulnerable. A lot of the, the themes that she talked about in that New York Times article, you know, were very, very personal. The descriptions of the event, of what happened, of how it happened, uh, of what it felt like for her and for Harry. I mean, she, she really laid it all out there and made herself vulnerable. And I think mm. in doing so, you know, a lot of women and also their partners um, saw their own grief reflected. And that's so important when you can feel so isolated and alone, if you feel like you're the only one going through this, uh, to see that not only other people, but other high profile people are also going through this and dealing with the grief. I mean, that alone uh, could really help. Absolutely. And as you say, I think it is the visceral detail of, mm. in this essay that really makes it stand out. I think, you know, we've obviously heard from many public figures uh, in recent years about uh, their, their own periods or struggles with grief mm. following a miscarriage. Um, but very rarely do we get this level of detail with a story like this. Of course, it immediately made me think of Chrissy Teigen's mm -hmm. um, essay that she wrote for Medium earlier this year alongside photographs taken by John Legend in the hospital room after they had suffered a tragic miscarriage. And the conversations that followed that, of course, were, I would say, almost unprecedented following uh, sort of sharing something like this because of the detail that that story carried. And I would say it was very much the same with this essay. Um, the title of it was The Losses We Share. And I actually just want to read just a passage from the intro of it, because if you haven't read it, um, I do suggest you actually go out and read it. Don't read summaries of it elsewhere. Um, but these first words in the piece are just so powerful um, and must have been so difficult to write. Mm. Um, Megan, of course, talks about uh, starting the day, uh, walking the dogs, uh, picking up Archie to uh, change his diaper. And she writes, I felt a sharp cramp. I dropped to the floor with him in my arms, humming a lullaby to keep us both calm. The cheerful tune, a stark contrast to my sense that something was not right. I knew as I clutched my firstborn child that I was losing my second. Mm. And the Duchess goes on to talk about laying in the hospital bed. She says, holding my husband's hand, I felt the clamminess of his palm and kissed his knuckles wet from both our tears. Staring at the cold white walls, my eyes glazed over, I tried to imagine how we'd heal. And I would imagine that part of that healing process was writing an essay like this. Mm, I think that's such a good point. Hearing you reread it, it's just, uh, it kind of cuts you every time. And I, I think that's also the, the point of it, to really, you know, make people feel and realize that this grief is real. And if you're feeling it, if you've gone through something similar, what you're feeling is also real. And, you know, I wanted to point out also, Omid, a, a point in that passage that struck me when you just read it now, when I first read it, is that Harry was also so involved. And I think that's also exceptionally important that, you know, this isn't just 
a loss for the, the woman who was carrying the child. It's a loss for the whole family. It's a loss for, you know, the man who was going to be a father as well. And so to also bring, you know, the father into the picture, the partner into this discussion and say this is a grief that the whole family went through. Um, it also, you know, I think the woman who's bearing the child can feel very isolated for many reasons. And so this also uh, shares the grief across the family. It also shares that family grief with other families that have gone through something similar. And so, you know, I, I applaud them both for making themselves vulnerable, for Harry to be written about in such a way, the fact that, you know, talked about Harry's tears and, and made it very obvious that this was a pain that he was also feeling and a pain that they shared together. I think that's just really important to remember in all this. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's something, of course, here in the UK, we had Baby Loss Awareness Week in October. It's something we saw the Duchess of Cambridge uh, mark with a couple of engagements. Um, but one of the conversations that came out around that time, uh, specifically from an organisation called Tommy's, which is one of the world's largest charities that funds research into miscarriage, stillbirth and premature birth, they spoke about often the sort of voice of the father is often not heard mm. or even you know the taboo surrounding that is often even stronger because of course uh, we are getting perhaps as a society more used to hearing people speaking more openly about something that statistically affects one in four women mm. in this country and of course that statistic is only higher when you focus just on uh, African-American women or women of colour who of course are uh, that uh, face much higher risks during pregnancy, not just to uh, differences in health, but also down to uh, systemic racism that of course changes that sort of, in or creates that inequality in healthcare availability mm. and position in society. Um, but men are often left out of that conversation. So I think to keep Harry uh, very much a prominent person within that essay, um, was so important because, of course, it sent another message alongside the one that Megan was trying to to speak on as well. You know, ultimately, this is a subject that has a huge culture of silence around, and I think so many couples, as Megan points out, feel quite isolated and helpless as they're trying to look for support during this. And it's why I wanted to reach out to some of the charities that focus on baby loss or miscarriage. Um, here in the UK, we have a number, and I was actually quite surprised to see that there are less uh, in the US than I would really? have expected. Uh, in yeah. fact, I read online comments from a lot of mums who spoke about, uh, mums in the US, who spoke about not being able to find that sort of uh, network of supports through organisations such as Tommy's or uh, Miscarriage Association mm. here in the UK and, uh, and actually turn to British organisations uh, to find that support or to get that advice. Um, and so I think ultimately an essay like this opens up these conversations, it highlights areas which perhaps haven't been discussed in enough depth. Uh, we know that research into miscarriage is severely lacking globally. Um, when I spoke with Sophie King, who's a specialist midwife at Tommy's, uh, uh, one of the things that she discussed was just how many couples uh, still leave that hospital room having been told by a doctor that it was simply down to bad luck or misfortune or it just wasn't meant to be. And now if it was any other health situation, we would demand more answers mm. than that. And I think that that often leaves people coming home feeling quite lost and unsure where to go. And so uh, charities like Tommy's are putting in millions of pounds into research to actually get to the bottom of why things like this happen.
That's so interesting. I've never actually really thought of it in that way before, but you're totally right. It would be, it's kind of shocking that the, the research isn't there to, to find out, you know, causes behind it and, and have a more of a robust research. And I know you, you mentioned Thomas as well. A lot of those organizations have been reacting to Megan's article, supporting it. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of organizations here in the UK as well saying, you know, applauding her for, again, being vulnerable, um, being someone who's so high profile talking about this. Also, I've seen a lot of, of, of women on Twitter just referencing that, you know, when they also went through their own miscarriage, they went on the internet to read about other women's stories because it made them feel less alone. And so this is a great example of someone who was writing about their story. Who knows what future women are going to be going through this same uh, process and same tragedy. And uh, they might rely on Megan's article to help them again, just feel less alone during this time. Um, I am curious, Omid, your thoughts on you know, obviously this is a subject that I think within the past few years, more and more people are talking about. Um, but obviously in the, in the royal family as well, you know, the whole idea of um, future generations has a different sort of meaning and importance. Now, obviously, you know, there are, are many sort of heirs to the throne ahead of Harry. It's been well documented by this point. But is there any, you think, extra pressure within the royal family as well to sort of have this continued legacy, you know, this continued sort of um, next generation? And do you think that extra pressure is also felt, you know, by, by Harry and Meghan? I think it's interesting, it's, you know, it's something certainly for senior members of the royal family can always be front of mm. mind, particularly in a time when the male heir was more important than the mm. female uh, newborn. And I'm sure the Duchess of Cambridge uh, would have been one of the very few people within the royal family that truly feels the pressure of having to mm. produce an heir, of course, when you're uh, married to the direct line to the throne, uh, that is uh, something that comes with the territory. Uh, with Harry and Meghan, it's slightly different. Of course, mm. uh, they chose not to give Archie a title. They themselves have stepped back. And of course, Harry is several rungs down the ladder, so to speak. So there isn't that pressure there. But I think what we have seen in the royal family is that not many have spoken about issues such as this in such detail or really from the, the same sort of place that we saw the Duchess of Sussex uh, come from. Uh, of course, Zara Tyndall is one of the others that has also spoken about suffering a miscarriage. In fact, she spoke about suffering two miscarriages, one in 2018 and one in 2016. In a Times of London interview, um, she spoke about that it was a time when her family, the royal family, came to the fore and she needed them more than ever. And she says it's something you don't talk about because it's too raw, but as with everything, time's a great healer. And of course this led to many people asking, did the royal family know about this? And from the conversations I've had with sources, Harry did inform his family around the time of this happening. Um, we did, or I have reached out to Buckingham Palace for comment, as did a number of journalists. Of course it's a personal matter, something that mm. the palace wouldn't normally speak on, uh, but a source close to the family did say to myself and other reporters that this was understandably a time of sadness for the family. And, you know, that's probably usually as much insight as we get to sort of the, that inner sanctum of the royal family. Um, but it is good to know that there had at least been that open dialogue between the two families. And they also had that support from their extended family as well. Um, I, I guess at the end of the day, it's just it's it is you know it's hard to uh, 
imagine that they were going through all of this when you see those other photos of them as well, you know, attending uh, charity um, events. And, and I think there was a photo of them in August, you know, when they were handing out um, uh, help packages on the streets of LA. And to think that, you know, just a few weeks before they had suffered this tragedy, uh, reminding yourself of those moments and remembering also that, you know, everyone kind of has something going on. So all those times where, you know, you may. Uh, think to speak ill of someone or question why they're doing something. You don't really know what's going on in their personal life. You don't know, you know, what grief they're dealing with. And this is just another reminder of that. Yeah, and that, that kind of speaks to the, the point that Megan makes further into the essay that she says, you know, that importance of asking others how they're doing. Because mm. you're right, we do rarely ever know sort of what goes on in someone else's sort of private space. And that's often because people feel uncomfortable due to societal norms or pressure to share some of those more personal details. When in fact, I think all of us could benefit from being able to feel comfortable and speaking more openly with our friends, our loved ones, our colleagues. Um, and, you know, it was almost a year ago to this month or a year ago last month that Megan was famously asked how she was doing by mm. Tom Bradby on that uh, Southern Africa or that documentary on their tour of Southern Africa. And of course, her answer famously, not many people have asked if I am okay, uh, really sent a message or at least was something that so many mums and individuals around the world could connect to. Because I think that is a, a feeling that is shared by many, that not many people have asked how I am. And that was something that really Megan, I guess, has almost reclaimed that question mm -hmm. now as a call for empathy in this essay, in a year when we have all gone through so much, where we've all dealt through so much personally, but also as a community, as, a, as, a, as a, the entire mankind, we've all been touched by and affected by COVID in some way. And this is really that time to be asking people how they're doing. Yeah, it's a good point. Again, if you haven't um, read the, the, the full article yet, definitely go read it because it's more, it is about more than her own grief. She ties in um, so many different elements from 2020, you know, including uh, mentioning Breonna Taylor and calling for justice. She mentions the pandemic and the lives that have been lost and uprooted because of you know, the pandemic and lockdowns. And uh, there is just this greater call for empathy sort of across the board, reminding people to ask each other, are you okay? And even, you know, asking the bigger question, how could we change the world? Just that simple question. And I really like what you said, uh oh, it kind of, she's reclaiming it now because I think, you know, there, there was some backlash against her saying that as well. There was criticism that bubbled up, especially in a lot of the UK papers, um, sort of asking, does she have a right to even say, you know, why aren't people asking if I'm okay? And so now to see her sort of um, a year later owning that statement and saying, mm -hmm. not only do I own this, but I'm encouraging everyone else to ask people in their lives, to ask strangers, are you okay? It is sort of a full circle moment. Absolutely. In fact, when after Megan had given that answer, or after that documentary had aired, um, Megan had found out that there was an online community of mothers through an app called Peanuts uh, that had uh, not long launched. And within that community, there had been thousands of conversations from women who really connected with those words that Megan shared mm. on the documentary. And when they uh, reached out, or I believe when they reached out to Buckingham Palace, which of course where she was working, at the time, uh, Megan was completely bowled over by the reaction she had seen from the sort of community of mothers 
uh, online and she had reached out to the CEO of this app, Michelle Kennedy, to basically talk about how it warmed her heart to see that uh, there was such a sort of space online for motherhood and womanhood to be a place where uh, people could talk openly about issues such as baby loss or mental health and well-being. And of course, they were one of the first people to speak out when Megan had written this essay, having already had a relationship with her. In fact, I spoke with um, the CEO myself and you know she spoke about just how Megan talking about this experience, not only was it sort of a brave and empowering act for her, but it's also something that will give other women the strength and courage to share their own stories. You know, not only hearing her voice and hearing her speak out in such a raw and honest way, um, that will truly inspire other women to do the same. You know, so much healing can be done when we reach out, share experiences and support one another. And I think really at the heart of Megan's essay, that is one of the things that she's saying. And I just want to say, if you or anyone you know has been affected or touched by baby loss or miscarriage, there are many places to reach out to. Um, as I mentioned, we uh, there's the Miscarriage Association, there's Tommy's, uh, there's the Sands charity here in the UK, and of course, Peanuts, which is an app I think you can find on the Android and iPhone app stores. After the break, we will be catching up with the Duchess of Cambridge, who has her own focus on um, issues uh, relating to motherhood and early year childhood development. And of course, the big news of the week, Prince Charles's adoption. Welcome back. Well, uh, you will remember at the start of the year, the Duchess of Cambridge launched what she called five big questions. It was a survey for people in the UK and around the world to take part in, asking about their thoughts on uh, parenting and early years childhood development and the importance or the connection between the two. Uh, Now, it is some almost a year, 11 months to a year later, and we finally have the results of that alongside the results of other surveys carried out by the Royal Foundation and the Duchess of Cambridge, looking into the effects that the pandemic have also had on parents around the world. And I think what was interesting about this, Maggie, was this is is sort of one step forward in what will be a very big year for the Duchess of Cambridge. Uh, Earlier today, uh, journalists were invited to watch uh, an uh, forum that Kate had taken part in where she gave a keynote speech to unveil the results of the early years research and as well as revealing these key findings from her early years research she also reflected on her decade almost a decade of research into the field of the early years. Kensington Palace say that this is really the beginning for her and that this is going to be a huge focus on the work she does moving forward. Maggie, you and I have spoken about this quite a lot before. It feels like a long time in the making, but this seems to be her moment that she's ready to really grab by the horns. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned she's been really working on this for a decade now. This has been such a passion for her. But you know, also remember, she's had three young kids in that time too, right? So not only is she uh, sort of always had a passion for this and educating herself about it, but she's also living through the early years with her own children. So I think that's going to give her a really unique perspective. And and now that her kids, you know, are growing up and getting a little bit older, um, it's great to see that she's actually 
channeling all of that, taking that years of not only sort of her academic research, but also her real life experiences and research and uh, now channeling all that into hopefully some action. You know, not only do we have the answers from the survey, uh, but uh, we have her ongoing commitment to this and, and her commitment to actually, you know, turning these survey answers into some tangible changes. And so I'm excited to see what happens. You know, you and I, again, have talked about this a lot, but how important this topic is and how it really can make, you know, a real change uh, for the future of not only the children's lives, but also for the country. You know, if you make investments at a young age, those are investments that then don't have to be made tenfold um, when those kids grow up in their 20s, 30s, 40s. So I hope she's successful. You know, I think this is something that could really impact uh, the country as a whole. And who knows? I mean, if, if it works here in the UK, why couldn't it work in the US and other places as well? So uh, I, I hope that whatever comes out of this survey and whatever uh, you know, we find out that is actually done as a result of it, that we see something, we see some tangible changes that could really make a big difference. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think at the moment, it's certainly for some, and I, I've noticed this in some of the online commentary or even feedback from some of the articles that I've written this week, I think for some people they're still not quite seeing what it is that this is going to be. But I think what we have to remember, this is like one brick in a very big mm -hmm. building. And, you know, what Kate is trying to achieve here, this isn't a sort of one-off project. This is something that could absolutely revolutionize a field that is often overlooked, as you mm. say. Uh, so many resources in England and Wales go into uh, sort of uh, intervention much later on in life, whether that's through social services or even through the criminal justice system. Um, and of course, that amounts to, I think, something like 22, $22.5 billion or yeah, something around that figure, which is just so, so much money spent. But of course, something that can be prevented in so many ways. So research like this, and I will always say you can never do enough research for something, uh, will ultimately find the answers that will help unlock some of the solutions for uh, really creating a better future for millions mm -hmm. of children in this country from the moment that they're born and that's an incredible thing to achieve um, but of course this is just the beginning and I would say that this is going to be Kate probably for the next 10 years or so she, you know she calls this a lifetime of work and I mm -hmm. think that this really will um, define her entire body of work and I'm looking forward to seeing it you know at the moment we're talking about it and you know how I feel sometimes I'm not a huge fan talking about things that haven't happened yet um, but so far so good yeah, agreed. I'm just very excited to see what happens and, you know, also to see how it evolves as well. If she keeps doing this for the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, what will come next? And as her own children sort of develop and become teenagers, will she continue with the focus of development? I mean, I think there's just so much potential. So, again, we're kind of all waiting to see what it's going to be, but I think there's a lot of excitement about the, the change this could really have. Exactly. Well, what's something we do have? tangible tangible results for um, this week. We've had news on the COVID-19 vaccine developed by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. Is this not the news that everyone's been waiting for for all of 2020? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, what a great way to end the year. And of course, this is one of three vaccines that are mm. now sort of, sort of stepping out of the trial phase and really become a real uh, prospect for people around the world. 
Um, now, of course, you will remember earlier this year, William was one of the first members of the royal family to really step outside of palace walls in the middle of the pandemic to for an in-person visit to the Oxford University and the to, to see the professors and the work being done at the Oxford Vaccine Group at Churchill Hospital. And that was where he saw the sort of first-hand efforts going into creating this vaccine. And even then, he was incredibly excited about it. And I think it was uh, one of those royal engagements that I think everyone had some interest in because, of course, this is a story or this is a subject that transcends any interest in the royal family. But, of course, this week we saw him connect with some of those uh, professors, uh, Professor of Paediatric Infection and Immunity, Professor of Vaccinology and others from Oxford University to really share his excitement about the developments that we've had. Yeah, I mean, this is really incredible uh, to watch this happen in real time. When you talk about vaccine being developed like this, I mean, it's just, it's unprecedented. I mean, when you look at the charts omit of how long it normally takes a vaccine to be developed, I mean, it takes years, I mean, more than a decade normally. This is not something that just happens overnight. And so uh, the mere fact that we're talking about a vaccine that could be, you know, given to the public in less than a year from when this virus was even discovered, it's it, it's it's shocking. It just it doesn't happen. And so I think you also saw that on on William's face as well. He's been you know kind of encouraging them and, and with this team from the beginning. And so to see it be at the point where you know they're talking about potentially giving starting to give this to certain members of the public next month. That's I mean that's crazy. Mm. It's it's amazing. It's what we kind of all been waiting for. And now there are all the caveats of. Who's going to get the vaccine when? We're still waiting on final approvals. But I think, I mean, even the fact that we're just talking about this, there was a point not too long ago, Omid, where the world really wasn't sure if we'd ever get a vaccine. Coronaviruses are notoriously difficult to vaccinate against. There were talks that we may never get one. If we did get one, it would only be partially affected. Now that we're talking about vaccines that are 70 to 90% effective, this is such a game changer. And like you said, it kind of transcends even the royal family at this point. Um, This is something that the world has been waiting for. And what's specifically interesting, I think, also, Omen, about the vaccine that William's been such a champion of, that Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the one coming out of the UK, is that there's been such investment of, in it uh, to send it to, to, to poorer countries. Um, mm-hmm. Also, it doesn't have to be vaccinated. It's only, you know, like other, some of the other, vac- sorry, it doesn't have to be refrigerated like some of the other vaccines, uh, which also can help it to get to remote, rural, hard to reach areas. So this could really be a vaccine for the people, a vaccine that goes, you know, to help the it's going to be billions of people that need to get vaccinated. Uh, so there's just there's so much to unpack with this news. Uh, but I do love that William's sort of been a part of it from the beginning. And, you know, I think his curiosity and enthusiasm for the project is what we all feel. And so it's great to see it on his face as well. Absolutely. Of course, the news comes after both Pfizer and Moderna uh, announced uh, that their vaccines mm-hmm. were delivering 95% protection. I think the Oxford vaccine is looking at some, somewhere around 90% after two doses. But as you say, this is a vaccine for the world, not just for high-income countries, not just for the UK, it's for everyone. And I, ultimately, that's the most important thing because we're not safe with a vaccine alone. We're safe when we're all safe. And so with a vaccine like this, which is a fraction of the cost of the others um, can really sort of bring that safety that I think that we're all mm-hmm. craving. I do have one thing that I'm a little curious about though. Given that we've seen Prince William 
be very much a part of or followed the journey of the Oxford vaccine, mm. will he be one of the first the public figures that we see talking about taking that vaccine? That's will we hear something from the palace? Yeah. Well, I, I, I do know that they made a big point to say that the royals will not get the vaccine before other people. You know, this is something that uh, yeah. the rollout of the vaccine is almost just as big of a deal. The distribution of it is actually finding it. And I, I believe in, in most places, including the UK, it's going to go to healthcare workers first, then essential workers, frontline workers, and then sort of a tiered system down in age, you know, which in the case of Queen and Philip, they would probably would get it first because of their age, but not because of their royal status. Uh, but on the flip side of this, you know, there also has been some talk that some people are concerned to get the vaccine. They're concerned because, you know, it was developed so quickly and there might be concerns over uh, people if people think it's safe or not. And so to have someone who is high profile uh, like William, like a prince, you know, like the future king, get the vaccine could actually then encourage other people to get it as well. So I think it'll be fascinating to see as this is rolled out, you know, what almost is the PR move here? Um, is it that we need someone in the palace to get this vaccine, to show that it's safe, to show that people can get it so that other people are comfortable getting it or do we need to hold off on vaccinating someone like William who is younger and in good health to show that you know really our most vulnerable need to get it first I mean those are tough decisions Omid I honestly don't know what the answer is so it'll be really interesting to see what ends up happening mm. we've certainly seen a more open side to the Cambridges and I think this would be something that mm. I, I would imagine that they would look to share um, speaking of, we did have some quite sad news uh, shared on the Kensington Royal Instagram account this week, uh, where both William and Kate posted that their dear dog Lupo, the English Cocker Spaniel that you will have seen in many photos, uh, that's I think was born in 2011, so nine years old, mm. um, had passed away. And they say he's been at the heart of their family for the past nine years and will miss him so much uh, alongside a photo shared by him. and. You know, I remember when Lupo first came on the scene and the really? furore around <laughs> what his name was was just something that took up so much time for the press officers and communications staff at Kensington Palace, who of course had been instructed by the couple not to reveal his name. I mean, deja vu, we've had the <laughs> same thing with Harry and Meghan's dog as well. Oh, that is too funny. I'm sure it's kind of a uh, walk down memory lane for them. I mean, that I often find with people and their dogs, you know, it's such uh, a moment in their lives. You know, when you've got the dog, a young couple, and then all of a sudden together they've had this dog, they've had children, their kids are growing up with the dog. I mean, it's almost more, uh, remembering the dog is more than the dog even. It's also remembering, you know, the past few years of their life. And so seeing that on Instagram, it was pretty emotional. Mm. Well, Lupo predates George, Charlotte and Louis. Oh, In fact, you know, the story kid. is, is that William got Lupo uh, whilst uh, he, he was serving as an RAF search and rescue pilot and on duty in the Falkland Islands. And he so mm. he was leaving Kate for six weeks and he gave her or surprised her or they made hmm. the decision to get Lupo to help with 
the time apart that he would be spending from Kate's. Um, And this was something I think many uh, sort of wives of military men um, have experienced, you know, sort of that loneliness and an animal often comes in really handy for that. So he sort of came in at a really special time for the couple um, and leaves quite early, of course. Nine years old isn't that old and it's Mm. obviously something that I'm sure will have hit their family hard, especially for children. You know, they will no doubt have been attached to him. That's a good point. This is such a sort of a, a lesson in life for kids as well. And another reminder that, you know, whether you're a royal kid or a regular kid, um, you sort of have to learn about loss at some point. And so to go through the loss of, you know, one of your first pets, that's really hard. I remember when my first dog died and you know, it, it's so emotional. You're kind of learning that, you know, there's sadness and grief in life. And so to know that the little kids are going through that and, you know, hopefully knowing there also could be another dog. Uh, there's a lot of life lessons there. Well, there are new pets also on the scene in the royal Get family. Get to it, guys. This is the te- <laughs> this is the tease we've been waiting for all along. Tell us, Omid. Well, there are three new residents living in the Queen Elizabeth Walled Garden at Prince Charles's <laughs> Dumfries House, his home in Scotland. And they are three baby hedgehogs That's adopted right. by the Prince of Wales. I love this story. I mean, I just, everything about it from start to finish, this is exactly how I wanted to wrap up the podcast today, Omid, you know, just with some good natured hedgehog adoption. <laughs> there are, uh, so I, we, we don't have names yet. Uh. And I, this is, top of my list to find out what these names are but they have two females one male Mm -hmm. they're hoping it will encourage others to do the same Um, they live in the garden to help keep down the number of slugs and pests in his organic gardens of course when there's no pesticides or so on this is something that is often a problem Um, they're four years or four months 